I think we can see from the vast experience and expertise uh, on this panel that we have a terrific group of people. So why don't we begin now uh, in the order in which I introduced all of you um, with Ms. Lazier. I would like to thank Senator Van Hollen, the Subcommittee on Africa and Global Health Policy, Senator Haggerty, and others on the committee for the invitation to speak today at this important hearing. I'm Flori Lazier, President and CEO of the Corporate Council on Africa, which is the only U.S. trade association solely focused on expanding trade and investment between the United States and Africa. This hearing is perfectly timed. Today, CCA concluded the second of three days of this year's U.S.-Africa Business Summit. Although we are holding it virtually this year, the summit annually gathers U.S. and African leaders from government and business to discuss the most important opportunities and issues. The theme of this year's summit is New Pathways to a Stronger U.S.-Africa Economic Partnership. And sessions at the summit have just covered a number of important themes you target in this hearing, including a session we had just this morning where we hosted Representative Karen Bass and Representative Chris Smith, who met with a number of key companies who are investing in Africa to hear more from them about just how we can expand our trade and investment relationship with the nations of Africa. This is the right time to reassess our economic relationship with the continent. And the short version of my conclusions about how we do this is that the United States and companies are not taking advantage of the opportunities we could in terms of what Africa offers, while our competitors are doing a much better job. In the next 10 to 20 years, Africa's importance to world markets will grow significantly in many of the sectors that drive American prosperity, including ICT, energy, finance, infrastructure, and health. The COVID pandemic has accelerated existing African efforts to change the continent's narrative. As they look to build back better, African countries are doubling down on integrating their economies, accelerating digitalization efforts, better linking up with shifting global supply chains, and improving their health security, as well as their overall economic prosperity by increasing manufacturing of health, as well as many other products on the continent. And they are looking to the private sector to lead the way in each of these cases and sectors. In some, African governments and companies have made it crystal clear that they intend to build a better Africa that is much more competitive and better integrated into global supply chains. They have also made it clear that the United States and American companies are very welcome, often preferred partners. So how should we respond? The US government and Congress can help by providing some public guidance on what kind of long-term relationship we have in mind. Since its enactment in 2000, AGOA has been the cornerstone of US economic policy towards Africa. It is now set to expire in 2025. Africa has become much more sophisticated and better integrated globally since 2000. Africa is now in the process of completing the first phase of creating the world's largest unified market through the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. The United States would best serve its own interests by recognizing the progress Africa has made and putting in place policies that will allow our companies to mutually grow the US and African economies along the lines above. 
we should adopt a, a, a more nuanced policy and multifaceted approach that recognizes that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to Africa, that accepts that unilateral preferences for certain African nations should continue under AGOA, while we go beyond AGOA in developing mutually beneficial reciprocal agreements, FTAs, and support the AFCFTA's implementation and ensure its success. The Biden administration has helpfully reiterated U.S. support for AFCFTA, and we should definitely continue that. On AGOA, the goal should be to help the countries which have yet to benefit from this important duty-free access to U.S. market. And there is no conflict in doing these while at the same time continuing the U.S.-Kenya FTA discussions and establishing a template or model for trade agreements with Africa that go beyond Africa, go beyond AGOA, and mutually benefit our companies and workers. We should also keep in mind that these discussions are taking place against the backdrop of Africa's pressing fight to combat the COVID pandemic. African officials never again want to be at the end of supply chains that can fail, leaving their populations vulnerable. One of the aspects of the U.S. response to COVID that African leaders have singled out approvingly is the provision of the advanced market purchase for vaccines. The G20 is already looking at whether some version of this can be applied to set up funding to minimize the impact of future pandemics. In conclusion, CCA looks forward to the opportunity to work with members here today and many others, both Senate and House, and on both sides of the aisle, to develop the kind of multifaceted approach that will grow and enhance the U.S.-Africa economic relationship. Thanks for the opportunity to speak to you today at this hearing, and I look forward to answering any questions. Well, thank you for your testimony, uh, Ms. Lazier. And I, I want to explain that we have a vote on, so it's nothing that you said as to why Senator Haggerty uh, left. He's going to go vote and come back, and then we'll do a, you know, a, a relay. Um, so you. that we can continue with the hearing without interruption. So thank you. Uh, Dr. Sidney. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Chairman Van Hollen, Ranking Members Round, and distinguished members of the subcommittee for your extraordinary leadership on U.S. trade and investment with Africa. I am incredibly honored and grateful for the opportunity offered to me by the members of the subcommittee to testify on U.S. trade and investment in Africa. I'm Landry Signé, Executive Director and Professor at the Thunderbird School of Global Management, Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, Global Economy and Development uh, and Africa Growth Initiative, I'm author of Unlocking Africa Business Potential. It is time for the U.S. to reverse the trend in the ground uh, in Africa, the trend lost in Africa, uh, as many traditional and emerging powers uh, are racing to capture Africa's tremendous economic potential. By 2050, Africa combined consumer and business spending may exceed 16 trillion U.S. dollar and the combined GDP may also exceed 29 trillion US dollar. So by the end of the century, Africa will make up to 40% of the world population. The United States has a sustained competitive advantage 
to partner with Africa, advance U.S. trade and investment with Africa while meeting Africa's priorities for mutual prosperity. This could be best realized through a long-term comprehensive Africa strategy building on value-based foreign policy and a market-based model of development, technology, commerce, education, accountability, amongst others. My recommendation for effective U.S. trade and investment in Africa are as follows. Focus policy action on impact and on the effective implementation and delivery of initiatives uh, beyond big policy announcements. Make Prosper Africa more agile in its ability to manage complexity and competition and appoint a dedicated uh, full-time chief executive officer uh, to assist the current leadership, leadership team. Redefine the base for new engagement with Africa by appointing a U.S. special presidential envoy for Africa to represent the U.S. And, uh, at high-level meetings and multiply presidential and high-level visits uh, in Africa. Promote commercial diplomacy through an economic strategy that goes beyond the traditional vision of trade and investment and domestically increase efforts to document uh, and disseminate Africa's tremendous potential to U.S. SMEs. Capitalize on the AFCFTA that provides the opportunity for the U.S. and the world to address the global macroeconomic imbalances largely due to excessive concentration of supply chains. For the AFCFTA of the post-25 uh, AGOA uh, to be successful, uh, the U.S. should really be involved uh, in regular high-level consultations between uh, the uh, United States Trade Representative, the AFCFTA, the African Union, creating a working group which could define the critical steps forward. Capitalize also on the diaspora uh, which is heavily represented in the U.S. by uh, specifically adopting a diaspora commercial diplomacy. Accelerate the COVID-19 vaccine strategy and partnerships and invest in vaccine manufacturing industry and healthcare in Africa. Contribute to closing the gap in the physical and digital infrastructure by leveraging existing program through initiative and agencies uh, but also supporting digital, African strategy digital transformations. And the U.S. can uh, finally build on higher education to provide technical training and reskilling programs through initiatives and agencies to close the digital skill gap and improve human capital, especially the youth and women. And you spoke about YALI, which is an illustration of uh, such an initiative. In closing, by acting promptly and forging transformative leadership aligned with African value, the U.S. has the opportunity not only to advance its own interests, but to contribute to the transformation of Africa. Thank you very much for your attention and looking forward to your questions. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Signet. And now we'll turn to Ms. Ruby. Thank you uh, for your testimony today. Thank you, Senators, for the opportunity to speak today, and a special thanks to your hardworking staff for putting this hearing together and all that they do. Uh, my name is Aubrey Rubin. I'm a senior fellow at the Africa Center at the Atlantic Council, and I'm a long-term advisor to investors investing across the continent. 
You spoke eloquently about the tools that we now have in our toolbox uh, when it comes to US-Africa commercial diplomacy. I wanted to give some recommendations on how those tools could be improved and then what we should use those tools to do. So going first to the DFC, uh, the biggest issue there has been the equity power that was granted to the DFC in the Build Act and has not been fully realized because of scoring budgetary issues with OMB. Um, so I fully support uh, efforts by uh, Senator Murphy and by Representative Castro in the Eagle Act and the Innovation and Competition Act to fix this issue uh, and allow the DFC to be able to operate with its full equity allocation, mm -hmm. making it competitive with European uh, DFIs and with other uh, states that uh, finance infrastructure and projects uh, globally. The DFC should also work with Prosper Africa to engage domestically in the United States, not invest, but to engage in terms of mobilizing investment interest and institutional capital to be introduced to African opportunities. Uh, we have a big country and we have a very dynamic market and one of the reasons why many companies don't look to Africa is they have many other places to look and we need to introduce them to the opportunities. So this domestic imperative to mobilize capital should be a part of how the DFC works with Prosper Africa. Also on the DFC, I hope that it continues to remain focused on investing in lower income countries and ma maintaining that development finance mandate uh, with the exceptions it can get through the White House process uh, to invest in, in higher income countries. But the focus should remain one that would benefit uh, US companies and African markets as they seek to develop. On Prosper Africa, I think the biggest issue there comes in terms of its focus area. It needs to have sectoral focus uh, because trying to mobilize investment around a general mission of just facilitating trade investment is very difficult because no one goes to a cocktail party and says, I work for the private sector. No, they work in banking, they work in farming, they work in tech. And so we need to organize the Prosper Africa outreach based on a sectoral focus. Um, when it comes to MCC, uh, I believe MCC should have the ability to do sub-national compacts. Uh, today, it, it can do national compacts, uh, partnerships between, say, the, the U.S. And, and Ghana, which received multiple compacts from the MCC, and it can do regional compacts. And I was pleased to see the announcement of a movement to do the West Africa Power Pool, which is an example of a regional compact. However, I do believe we're leaving something on the, on the table when we don't think about working with subnational entities like Nigerian states, for example, where we could have huge impact on poverty alleviation and encourage good governance with that competition that happens in federalism, which we know well as a large, messy federal democracy ourselves. So in that sense, I think we're missing an opportunity with MCC. On AGOA, uh, Flory spoke eloquently on the importance that AGOA has played in undergirding our, our commercial ties with uh, African nations. Thinking about what replaces a 25-year program is an important process, and I think this committee and others can, can encourage hearings, encourage Prosper Africa to start a process of thinking about what should replace AGOA. It needs the best minds and energies uh, that we have to bear. Now, with these tools, what should we focus on? Uh, we spoke about the need to remain competitive in the face of competition with China. My focus would be on digital infrastructure in particular. 
we've been concerned for some time about Huawei, ZTE, and other companies building out the uh, telecom infrastructure that is in African markets. I think we have the opportunity in the U.S. to leapfrog some of that with satellite, not to mention our dominance in things like media, entertainment, and venture capital. And so if you think of the future of African markets, it will be shaped by the cell phone. And this is the mirror of the world of hundreds of millions of young Africans. And the question is, who is going to shape what, how this is used, what's on it, the content of the future? And for me, that is what we should be thinking about, how best the U.S. can use our tools and American companies' investments and our policy to kind of shape a better digital future, more aligned with shared values between the US and African nations around democracy, free and fair internet, and participating fully in a, in a digital economy. So thank you. I look forward to uh, taking questions. Well, thank you very much, uh, Ms. Ruby, for that, that terrific testimony to all of you. Uh, we've been joined by Senator Kane. Thank you, uh, Senator Kane. Uh, and let me just start uh, with the questioning, and then Senator Haggerty will be uh, back, and I will uh, go vote after that. But let me start with you, Ms. Ruby, because uh, thank you for identifying some specific measures that we could take uh, in terms of improving some of these tools, including uh, the DFC. And um, we are working to try to address uh, the issue of uh, making sure that we have more equity leverage and power with the CBO issue uh, you identified. Uh, you also mentioned uh, the issue of focusing on digital, especially with Huawei and 5G, and I'm pleased that as part of the sort of competitiveness bill that we passed here in the Congress uh, to, in the Senate, to enhance our competitiveness, um, we included a, an amendment to direct the DFC uh, to strengthen its uh, capabilities there. Uh, you've mentioned a sectoral approach. Uh, I don't know if you've got an idea uh, of what sectors you think would be most fruitful uh, for us to focus on um, as we move forward. Sure, I can speak to that issue. Um, I spent some time working on uh, questions of American competitiveness when it look, looking to African markets. And I think it's important when we talk about infrastructure because we talked about infrastructure broadly, but if you look at the, 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 the um, composition of the U.S. economy, we're a services-based economy. Uh, we haven't built infrastructure in our own country for decades, and this is something that's obviously taking up a lot of your time here in the Senate. When we think about being involved in infrastructure, I think it's important to think about niche areas, renewable energy, uh, satellite infrastructure, basically digital infrastructure. So I agree with some of the efforts that's happening in, in the White House to think about a digital Africa uh, policy or initiative that would fall under Prosper Africa. Prosper Africa for me is like the umbrella. It's the back end that, that facilitates the coordination between all of our disparate government agencies. But the front end needs to be led with a sector. So I think digital Africa makes sense, which is digital infrastructure, content development, that kind of entrepreneurial ecosystem and venture capital. I would put that all under a digital uh, Africa kind of headline. Power Africa, continue. It's working. Continue to can focus on, on power and renewable energy, especially with the new ambitious climate goals this administration has. 
And then we can look to other things. We can look at finance. We can look at agriculture and agribusiness. There are many areas. Uh, I think the key is to pick two or three and stick with them um, and, and, and stop having the focus of, of generalities when it comes to, invest, uh, to promoting trade investment with Africa. Companies don't invest in Africa. They invest in a country like Nigeria. They invest in a city like Lagos, and they invest in a sector and so I think it's important to drill down and have a sector focus when it comes to building our partnerships in African markets and in, in mobilizing U.S. investment. So when Prosper Africa was rolled out, and you remember it was kind of a stuttering rollout, uh, many of the, our, my colleagues and friends in African markets said, wait, is it just that American, that, that the agencies are just going to do their jobs better? They're just going to coordinate better? That can't be what we're selling or putting on the table uh, that is the nature of American partnership. No, it needs to be around things like educational partnerships, which uh, Dr. Sinier just mentioned. It needs to be around digital partnerships or agribusiness investments. We need something specific to focus on. So mm -hmm. from my perspective, there, there are quite a few good choices. We just need to pick two or three. Well, well, thank you for that. And that leads to a question. Ms. Um, Lazier, you've mentioned in your, your comments that uh, while some African countries have uh, you know, prospered more or taken more advantage of AGOA, uh, many have not benefited. And, and if you look at the figures, I think you see that you know, over 50% of uh, trade and investment in Africa is really two countries, uh, Nigeria and South Africa. So how, so how do we do what you suggested? How, how do we get uh, more African countries to benefit from that, using these other tools as, as well? And then, Dr. Sinier, if you could also focus on that question. It's not letting me. You can hear? We can hear you. Great. I'm sorry. So um, thank you, Senator. Um, so uh, I, I think that um, picking up a bit on what um, Aubrey uh, said, uh, we, need to, we need to be sector focused and we need to be region focused. And we need to think about how global supply chains work. So um, I've had the privilege over the years when I was at USTR and even since then, to visit uh, factories on the continent in Africa in a range of sectors. And what I mean by um, focusing on sector, country, um, is, is that if you look at, um, and value chains, if you visit a plant in Mombasa that's producing apparel, Kenya is now the largest exporter of apparel to the U.S. Uh, under AGOA. Um, what, what you realize is that you have factories there that have 5,000, 6,000 people. Um, you can visit similar factories in Tanzania and Uganda that only have maybe 200 or 300 people. They're not able to really scale up in the same way as the Kenyans, but if they work together through the East Africa Customs Union, and if Kenya actually had a free trade agreement where it had permanent duty-free access to U.S. market, then what we would be able to do is not just scale up production that's competitive, um, uh, uh, competitive production of apparel in Kenya, but they would then be able to bring into that value chain some of the smaller producers in the region, um, and and you know perhaps some who might be able to make zippers but couldn't really put the final product together, or the buttons, or you know any of the things that go into to apparel. 
And so I think that as we think about how to help countries like the Tanzanias and the Ugandas to take greater advantage of AGOA, we should think about, you know, are there particular supply chains where uh, they already have some capacity, but if they are linked to others in the region, um, that they could do more. And I saw this also in the automobile sector. Um, I visited a factory in Lesotho that was producing um, uh, leather seats for um, uh, automobiles in South Africa that are being shipped to the U.S. under AGOA. So again, um, it's unlikely that um, uh, uh, an auto manufacturer is going to go and set up in Lesotho. Um, but how do you bring Lesotho in to the automotive value chain? That's something that, that, that's possible. So I think we could take lots of these kinds of examples, including in value-added agricultural products, manufacturing of, um, of footwear, I've seen that as well, and then try to take advantage of the way that companies operate these days. They can't be in small, tiny markets all across Africa. Um, you know, they need a larger, unified market that can drive investment. And so I would just think that that uh, goal of the companies for markets and, uh, that are larger and economies of scale can also be linked to how we help countries do better under AGOA. Thank you. To my colleagues, um, you know, we'll do seven-minute rounds. Uh, there's no sort of, I think we'll have ample opportunity and we'll have more than one round of question if people are interested. And uh, so, Dr. Cindy, I'm going to apologize because I do have to vote right now and I'll be back and follow up with some of my questions. But let me turn it over to Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Chairman. And um, I will see you in a few minutes after your vote. Um, Ms. Ruby, I'd like to turn to you uh, for the moment to talk with you about something that you mentioned in your testimony I found very interesting, and that's electric batteries. Uh, you mentioned specifically that uh, we need to work more closely with our allies and partners to meet Africa's needs and prevent a better alternative than what's presented by China and Russia. And I think that's an excellent case in point, what you brought up about uh, the, the potential uh, of focusing on the electric battery value chain as a way to cooperate between the United States, between Europe, and certainly with Africa. Uh, and something that I'm aware of and that you brought up as well is that China currently dominates the supply chain for lithium batteries, yet the majority of the inputs come from Africa. And I think you highlight a, a critical point that is of great interest to me because in my home state of Tennessee, we produce a lot of cars. We're very interested in the evolution toward the electronic vehicle. We want, to, we want to maintain our leadership role there. In fact, we just announced a $2.3 billion investment in Tennessee in lithium batteries. So I would certainly support any initiative that we can work on that would increase cooperation between Africa and the United States uh, on, on this issue, particularly when it comes to supply chain. So I'd look forward to just ha having you elaborate a bit on how we might create greater cooperation with Africa on the electric battery supply chain. Thank you, Senator. And, you know, I think the COVID crisis has shown us globally a need to rethink supply chains. And many countries around the world, many of our allies are doing that. I know the Japanese, for example, they have this big program through their central bank to, to reshore some supply chains out, outside of China after they realized vulnerabilities that they didn't see before. Uh, and I think the lithium battery chain, supply chain, is one we can look at because of its importance to continued U.S. competitiveness when it comes to EVs. 
and other areas of renewable energy. Obviously, solar is, is very key in terms of use of renewable or lithium batteries. So as African countries are home to many of these resources, from the lithium that you can get in, in Congo to graphite in Mozambique, right now China uh, refines about 80% of the world's graphite that goes into these uh, supply chains, and there's a need to think about how to do that better. And because of some of the trade and proximity uh, benefits that European countries have to African nations and their shared desire to have supply chains that are less dependent on China, I think there are ways we can begin to have that conversation. One of them is to convene a lot of the uh, mining companies that know a lot of the rare earth minerals and core competitive minerals like lithium to understand what they consider uh, key in thinking about their supply chains and what, what investments would be need to made, need to be made. I think where African nations share this interest is they want to do value addition locally. Uh, for too many centuries, you could say even decades for sure, but centuries, they've been exporting raw commodities to the world, unrefined, and therefore exporting the jobs that comes with them. So many of the countries seek to do some of the refining at home. Mm -hmm. And hopefully with uh, Power Africa, because some of the problems with refining is because high cost of electricity, with some of the Power uh, Africa investments that have been made and increasing um, investment into renewable energy sources, maybe some of that power could be locally used to do some of the smelting and refining. So uh, for me, it's about having a dialogue with both the mining companies, private sectors, the companies that are doing the batteries and consuming the batteries, and then European and Asian uh, countries in addition to the African homes of these minerals. Mm -hmm. I think it also is important as well to continue to convey the basic principles of free market competition that we support here in America that, that are not available in dealing with Chinese companies. And uh, there's been adequate experience, I'll just say this, in Africa and around the world right now to see the great difference and in, 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 in there's a great contrast between our approach and that of the Chinese Communist Party. So I hope we can continue to find ways, but I particularly appreciate your identifying that sector because it rings, uh, it rings close to home for me, and I look forward to finding ways to continue to cooperate. Um, Ms. Lazier, I'd like to turn to you next um, and, and talk, talk about recent press reports that China has proposed an alternative quad framework. Uh, I was surprised to see their outreach to Germany and France to propose a quad framework with the African nations and they propose to cooperate on development projects there in Africa. It's not clear whether or not this proposed China-led quad uh, will actually materialize or go anywhere, but if it were to proceed, it might pose significant challenges to the United States. And I would like to get your perspective and, and, and your opinion on how this might evolve, what would it mean for our U.S. interest in Africa? If you could try again on the now, yeah, you got great. It. <laughs> um, yes, this this kind of approach where uh, the Chinese are trying to basically become a part of sort of the usual processes, um, uh, become linked to others that may have uh, more of the of the um, uh, reputation that uh, you know African countries and others like. Um, I think is a, a part of their strategy. They know they've been in Africa. Um, they surpassed U.S. in trade with Africa years ago. Um, they're providing um, uh, favorable 
financing for uh, their companies to build roads and airports, um, et cetera, in Africa, um, uh, and, and build out the infrastructure which the Africans you know, very much need. And so when the Chinese come to them, they offer that. Now, I think that um, if they can link arms with others who are considered probably a bit more legitimate in terms of the kinds of, of things that they do and the ways that the Africans view them, then um, I think that that's something that um, will, will benefit them. I think the key for the US, though, is to not be reactive. I think we have to think proactively um, and, and creatively about what we can do. Because I have not been to any country, and I've been to many on the continent, where they are not saying, look, Flory, where are the US companies? How can we get more US investment? You know, what do we have to do you know, to get your companies to come? And they like our products. They like the fact that US companies will transfer technology, will, will transfer skills and train. Um, so they want to work more with us. And I think that what we have to do is to look at the tools that we have now. Mm -hmm. DFC, has been, as has been said here already, um, look at um, uh, the Prosper Africa, where they're bringing together all of the, what, 17 US government agencies and try to be on one page and leverage what, what, what the others are doing. Um, I think that we have to look at what it is that the US can do, both the government, uh, Congress and, and, and the executive branch and what U.S. companies can do in Africa that is desirable, um, uh, perhaps more than anything than those others in this new uh, G4 approach um, can offer. And I think it will be welcomed, sir. So that's where I think we have to sit down and, and map out what we can do and the tools that we can use more effectively. I certainly agree with the substance of, of, of your statement. In terms of not being reactive, that was precisely my reaction to what China announced in terms of a, an Africa-oriented quad, because we've been so successful with our quad approach between ourselves, Japan, India, and Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Uh, in, in many ways, I think this is yet more propaganda coming from China. I like your choice of words, legitimate, because the United States does provide a legitimate framework, and I agree with you. If we can bring our 17 agencies together in pros under the Prosper Africa Initiative and really develop and drive the full force and power of uh, the American position, I think we can make great strides. Absolutely. Mr. Sine, may I turn to you quickly? Um, Africa's, Africa's infrastructure needs are, are massive, as, as we've discussed. Recent estimates by the African Development Bank put the continent's minimum infrastructure needs at 130 to 170 billion dollars. Mm -hmm. And for over two decades, China has actively poured money into infrastructure projects in Africa, and it's unclear whether their motives are market-based or whether they're strategic. As a lifelong businessman, I understand it's very difficult to do business with a competitor that plays by a different set of rules and has the balance sheet of China behind it. So Dr. Sinye, are, are US firms showing interest in building infrastructure, and can they do so in an effective way given the difference in a competitive posture versus China? So thank you very much uh, for the question. So one point I want to highlight uh, is that uh, African citizens per Afrobarometer surveys prefer the, the American model of development uh, compared to the Chinese one, for example. In one of the recent study, 32 uh, percent over the Chinese 23 percent, and the other countries 
are lagging uh, substantially. So definitely there's an appetite uh, in uh, Africa for American uh, investors, and I think both uh, uh, Madame Lizer and uh, Mrs. Aubrey has, Aubrey have uh, identified also that appetite as uh, illustrated. So that is one point. So the second point uh, is that I think the U.S. should be strategic in terms of engagement, in terms of uh, infrastructure. Uh, a sectoral perspective, and in, as mentioned uh, in my written testimony, in the context especially to bridge the gap in terms of digital uh, uh, technology, the digital infrastructure gap, uh, extremely important. Uh, but it is still possible for the U.S. to be more competitive than uh, some of the Chinese co uh, corporations. I think for this to happen, uh, it is important to engage uh, with African organizations. Uh, whether the African Union, we have the Program for Infrastructure de uh, uh, Development in Africa, for example, which is a plan aiming at uh, bridging the infrastructure gap in Africa by uh, 2040, uh, uh, among other initiatives, by engaging, from, uh, especially at the continental level from a multilateral uh, perspective, by setting the priorities together and given the support that the U.S. already has uh, uh, on the continent, I think it will definitely be possible uh, for American companies to outperform uh, some of the external uh, players. I would certainly like to see that. Thank you, Dr. Sidney. I'd like to turn it over now to my colleague, Senator Kane from Virginia. Thank you, Senator Haggerty, and to you and the chair of the subcommittee for holding this important hearing today on trade and investment opportunities. And I'm going to spend my time talking about the interaction between economic opportunity and COVID and vaccination. Um, I just returned from a uh, CODEL to the Americas with six members of this committee, three Democrats, three Republicans, and it was pretty amazing. Um, even if I had seen the briefing and had, it had said exactly what I'm about to say, it was so different seeing it in person, and that was the incredible gratitude of the nations we visited, Mexico, Guatemala, Ecuador, and Colombia for the U.S. donations of vaccines. And what we heard from the presidents of these nations and the shortest meeting we had was two hours, and the longest was three hours, and that's not the norm, but I think it was because of this vaccine diplomacy. What we heard was they really appreciate the U.S. donations of vaccines because they can buy vaccines from China or Russia, but the donations from both the U.S., but then also from COVAX, to which the U.S. is a significant supporter, that's appreciated. And they also feel that the U.S. quality of the vaccines, Moderna, Pfizer, J&J, is very high, while these Sinovac and Sputnik vaccines are safe, but the effectiveness is not nearly as um, desirable, at least in, in their view, and I think the evidence would bear that out. Um, so it, the, the power of U.S. vaccine diplomacy became very uh, obvious to me when we were there, um, but also the, the stories of the economic challenges faced by these nations during COVID, while they're still dealing with the Delta variant, et cetera, are, are pretty stiff. And, and this is the case for Africa as well. The um, IMF estimates that Africa, the, the continental GDP, contracted by 1.9% in 2020, and that was the, the largest regional contraction on record. There's a growth prediction of 3.4% in 2021, but that's compared with a global growth projection of about 6%. 
the recent surge in coronavirus cases has lessened, but Africa continues to struggle, as we all do, with the Delta variant. Thus far, only about 1% of Africans have been fully vaccinated, and the AU's relatively modest goal of getting 20% vaccinated by the end of 2021 seems pretty hard to reach. Um, the U.S. has to recognize and that the continent is not going to reach its potential economically on the issues we're talking about today until the virus is contained. That's the case for Africa and elsewhere. Right. And so what I want to ask is each of you to give us your own thoughts about what the U.S. should do. In July, the U.S. began making its first COVID-19 vaccine shipments to Africa, the ultimate goal of sharing 25 million doses this summer across the partnership um, in connection uh, with the African Union. The Biden administration's recent vaccine donations are a good step, but the reality is that Africa will need about 200 million do doses to stem the crisis and meet its year-end goal. So um, given the, the crying need to do better on vaccination in order to both help people, but also create the conditions that are necessary for robust economic activity, what uh, do each of you have to recommend to us in the U.S. Senate uh, with respect to U.S. vaccine diplomacy in Africa? May I? Please. Uh, thank you, Senator King. Uh, we are at the Corporate Council on Africa. Very pleased that we have. Sure. Okay. Am I on now? Okay. Yes. <laughs> Um, so, so at the Corporate Council on Africa, we are uh, very focused on this uh, issue you're talking about. In fact, we had just yesterday as a part of our U.S.-Africa Business Summit um, a, uh, a session on vaccine access. And we had in that session um, uh, executives, some CEOs from major companies in the U.S., some that are members of CCA, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, Abbott, and others, um, uh, who are playing a role. We had uh, the CEO of a South African company um, that's um, producing vaccines um, with the support of, uh, of uh, Johnson & Johnson. And the, the, the key here is, is that um, collaboration is definitely needed. It's needed between uh, the African Union, um, uh, the African uh, medical supply platform, the AMSP that they've put into place. Um, if I can just say, I commended them when, when the COVID, uh, uh, COVID uh, pandemic um, uh, was sort of at its start, all the African countries were competing against each other to try to get vaccines <clears throat> for their people um, and then finding that because others could outbid them on the market, it was, it was sort of the wild, wild west was going on out there. So, so they would order, they wouldn't get any, um, you know, and they were competing against each other. When they put that platform together uh, under the African Union, they were then able to say, okay, what are all the needs? And then they said, okay, who can supply? And only people who could supply at the right prices and deliver within two weeks, I believe they gave them, were then uh, contracted to be a part of that. So collaboration is important across the continent. Collaboration between government and private sector. We know, for example, in Ghana, that um, uh, the government is supporting an effort with the private sector where uh, the private sector is saying, like banks and other institutions are saying, we will buy vaccine for our workers, and for every one vaccine we buy for a worker, we'll donate one vaccine 
to the government mm -hmm. because COVAX has been largely focused on just the health workers. And so the average workers, um, the average people in African nations have not had access. So the private sector has to work with the government to say, how can we do better on this? And so that's one of the, um, the things that they're doing now is private sector basically uh, boosting the government's ability to supply vaccine while also getting vaccine to people that they need to come to work and to be able to reopen their businesses because we all know that you know they took a double hit not just the health impact but the collapse of um, their their economies no tourism airlines not functioning etc so I, I would just say that that's the key for, for for government and private sector working together and then for the US, working with the African Union and with individual countries to supply vaccine. Thank you. Senator Haggerty, would you allow me to have the other two witnesses weighing in on this? I've hit the end of my time, but I think Absolutely. it's a pretty important time. Absolutely, Senator Kaye. Please. Thank you very much for the question. Uh, according to the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, only about 3.19% of Africans uh, did receive at least one uh, dose of uh, COVID-19 vaccines as of July uh, 21st. So that's an extremely important question and thank you very much uh, for, for, for asking uh, this. And a few elements are important here. Africa now are moving toward a trade and investment and less aid. Although in the current circumstances, aid is, an, is, is part, is acknowledged, uh, however, the U.S. can build uh, on areas of strength and distinguish itself uh, from other players by contributing to invest uh, in Africa, in the pharmaceutical sector, in the vaccine uh, industry. And in addition, the U.S. could also provide broad technical and financial support to the new African Union uh, Africa CDC initiative the Partnership for the African Vaccine Manufacturing, which aims to build five vaccine manufacturing research centers over the next 10 to 15 years. So uh, here again, as uh, we have seen with China uh, donating extensively uh, vaccine uh, 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 to many countries on, on the continent. So yes, aid is important. The US is doing so as well, but really the element of sustained competitive advantage here will be to partner with African countries, with partner at the continental level, at the separation level, at the national level, uh, with strategies which will allow uh, Africa to produce as well uh, COVID-19 vaccines, but even more uh, to produce other uh, uh, vaccines which are much needed in the continent. And we have already seen some of those uh, partnerships with Pfizer, for example, uh, in South Africa. So those are the type uh, of initiative which should be uh, accelerated. I will, I will be brief, Senator. Um, I think we do a couple things. In the nearest term, we continue to donate as much as we possibly can. Um, we also have many are unvaccinated in this country, so have to balance that. Uh, in the medium term, uh, we do deals as the DFC has done with, um, for example, the Aspen deal that um, uh, Lonre just mentioned, uh, which is uh, to produce J&J. Uh, &J. And then there was recently another one with uh, Pfizer and BioVac in Cape Town. 
Uh, and then there's the partnerships in Dakar, Senegal. So those are the medium term, which is to try to get the supply chains working to produce some of the vaccine inputs and vaccines on the continent. Longer term, it's research partnerships because this isn't the last pandemic we will see. And there, there are need to ensure that uh, no one's left behind when designing new medicines and thinking about the discoveries that will keep us all safe in the future. Thank you very much. I yield back. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Senator Kane. Uh, Senator Young, I think, is joining us uh, virtually here. Well, thank you, Chairman. And I, I thank all of our witnesses for appearing before the subcommittee. We've seen how Chinese aid, investment, and trade in the region have grown in the past decade. But these large numbers often overinflate the value of China's engagement and mask the true costs uh, that uh, various countries face. A recent report by Aid Data shows that African countries that borrow from the PRC have had to sign confidentiality clauses, set up offshore revenue accounts, and agree to many burdensome conditions. Um, to put it indelicately, you might say China sometimes acts like a loan shark rather than a true partner of, of various countries. This is all the more apparent now as countries struggle to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic and communist China continues to balk at participating fully in debt relief measures. Now, with that said, I don't doubt that PRC resources can do some good and are doing some good in the region. So I, I would just like to hear from our witnesses what your assessment is uh, of, of how on balance the effect of, of Chinese official lending in the region um, uh, is, is impacting uh, the region, actually promoting development and sustainable infrastructure. And if you could touch on um, how countries are responding to Chinese assistance now that some of the true costs of these arrangements are coming to light. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm happy to, to start. Um, so I would think uh, this speaks to another question we had earlier about uh, infrastructure and the need that is dire on the continent to fill an infrastructure financing gap. Many African countries are looking at financing solutions from China because they have not many other options that make sense in a political timeline that you all understand and we understand here in Washington. You get elected, you need to bring power and roads and rail to the people, and you don't have time to wait eight years for long-term processes by multinational multi, uh, institutions. So uh, China brings a fast solution to that. Um, but African partners are not naive in that process. They understand that there are trade-offs to be made, and often they come to that because there are not many alternatives. Uh, you had asked earlier, Senator, where were American companies uh, on infrastructure? And I think outside of the digital space, most of them are missing. They're not there, right? If you look at the largest EPCs, uh, engineering, procurement, and construction companies in the world, the top 10, of the top 10, seven are Chinese. We do not, I mean, there are the Bechtels every once in a while. There are, are a few, but we're not, we're not rapidly looking for these type of opportunities to build uh, transport infrastructure on the continent. And so I think we have to look at areas where we are. Look at what Google and Facebook are building when it comes to undersea broadband cables. Mm -hmm. Look at the potential, the transformative potential of, of SpaceX's Starlink, which could do last mile internet at a way that 
completely leaps over the Huawei and ZTE built 2G, 3G infrastructure. It's going to be direct from satellite. So I think we have to look at those opportunities. And I think to, to the Senator's um, question about an assessment, an honest assessment, listen, those roads that are built by Chinese companies, sometimes they carry Coca-Cola and sometimes they carry P&G products. And they allow people to get to clinics faster. And they allow people to go to school. So those, those roads and, and transport infrastructure has a positive impact. The question is, is the debt worth it? Is the debt worth it at the terms that it's being given? And is it being used to actually be efficient in terms of generating growth? So debt is not a problem in and of itself. Bad debt is taken on when you can't afford it and when it's used for the wrong ways. So I think we have to break down the issue of indebtedness in African markets. And look, many, many African countries are not even at their limits in terms of the GDP debt ratio. So we're talking about specific countries. Zambia is obviously one uh, where indebtedness is an issue. But not all African countries are in that boat. And I think we always have to be aware of averages, right? The average African country is the size of Montana. But talking about it that way doesn't make sense when you have a Nigeria that's 200 million person versus a Namibia, which is 2 million, right? Averages are a challenge, and regional kind of generalizations can be a challenge as well. So I think the Chinese footprint in African markets when it comes to infrastructure is a mixed bag. Um, but it is has gotten better over time. You do not see the crazy projects that you saw of the kind of white elephant and the 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 um, stadiums that we saw 10, 15 years ago. It's made a march towards the market. So and could there. I follow up with you uh, briefly? I, I, I'm grateful for your response there, for your fulsome response. Do we see multinationals? Uh, the IMF comes to mind. Maybe the World Bank. Uh, bringing more transparency to the terms or encouraging these countries um, uh, to learn from lessons that the multinational institutions uh, have learned. I'm not suggesting that all the countries or leaders are unsophisticated, but um, sometimes uh, they're, they're new to these arrangements. So um, have, have multinational institutions been helpful in improving the terms that we're seeing uh, across the continent of Africa as it relates to infrastructure investment from uh, communist China? They certainly, those institutions certainly bring with them high levels of, you know, ESG standards, so environmental, social, governmental, community engagement, conversations that are need to be had to ensure that a infrastructure project has long-term sustainability. But those processes have a downside. We understand that. The more you inject consultation and transparency in something, sometimes it takes longer. You know how that is in the Senate. Think about when you try to go to a dinner and you have to get, show that it's less than $35 or whatever the limit is because there's rules and things take time. So when countries are look for fast mobilization of resources when it comes to infrastructure, they look to entities and, and partners like China, like Turkey. China's not the only one that can move quickly on infrastructure. So I do think it's um, a, a situation whereby they do bring higher standards, but sometimes those standards take longer to uh, implement the projects. Thank you. Anyone else, if I have remaining time? Sure. I think there's one minute left. Yes, please. Uh, well, what is, I'll just ask a related question. What's been the impact of the uh, G20 debt service suspension initiative 
and the common framework in terms of promoting sustainable investment and economic recovery in Africa? Um, uh, and, and what are the consequences of China not participating fully in these initiatives? Uh, I, I wanted to actually um, just add two, two quick points on your previous question, Senator. Please, please. Um, so, so one of them is on the fact that um, uh, a lot of people, including in Africa, don't often give um, the U.S. credit for what we're doing in infrastructure through the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Uh, that that we, we have invested, I think it's over $11 billion in infrastructure, in ports and roads, um, uh, in energy um, uh, production on the continent. And um, we have the highest standards for it. I serve on the MCC Advisory Committee. And so um, African countries, when they qualify, they do the right things. They will have all the transparency uh, uh, criteria that are there. And I think that one of the things we need to do more of is to encourage Africans to meet the MCC criteria so that this infrastructure gap that they have can be met with U.S. Uh, dollars and U.S. companies that can um, provide that infrastructure. I think the other point is that in the past, um, the Africans would be pushed and urged um, by international institutions to take the lowest bids, the lowest priced bids. And that has now shifted. There are new rules in place which talk about uh, dollar for value and life cycle cost, where just because somebody gives an offer and a bid that's the cheapest doesn't really mean <laughs> that it's the best for you. Maybe you get that road and, you know, three years later it's fallen apart. Um, and there has been some experiences of that in, in, in Africa. So, so if you get a, a quality um, a, a roads and airports and others that are built, that's critical. The, the, the last point I'll make is that, uh, and, and Aubrey touched on this, our companies are probably far more competitive in providing the engineering services and the high technologies, the GPS and so forth that are needed at airports um, uh, the kinds of um, uh, products that should be used when you're building roads in Africa, we do that better. We don't actually, though, construct the roads. So I would just say that we need to, again, um, lean to our own strengths. Um, our companies are strong, and then we need to make sure that African countries know that they have the, 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 the room um, uh, to choose bids that are not the least expensive, the cheapest ones. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for the extremely important question. I'll try to address both. Um, so first, that is not the problem. It's just the, what is important is the, whether we have a projective use of resources or not. And I think that is where we have some challenges. And the second point is also the question of transparency. So it is the, one of the challenges with some partners is the lack of transparency in large infrastructure deals uh, where uh, when engaging with companies, especially from the, from the US and so many of the European companies, we have more transparency. Now, what do Africans think, at least uh, with many engagement, including at the head of state level, there is an infrastructure gap 
And many African leaders are willing to work with anyone who could, or any of the partners who could help bridging, in bridging that gap. So I think that is a, 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 a consideration uh, for the US in the strategy for engagement, for investment and engagement with Africa to also on the, to take into consideration the fact that African leaders in the private sector uh, really prefer working with the US when possible, as shown by Afrobarometer surveys, and also African citizens prefer, for example, democratic, seven out of 10 African prefer democratic and accountable governance, among others, so those are values and areas of uh, strength in the United States. But now when it comes uh, to investing in infrastructure, it's important to simplify processes uh, so that the US uh, could act with a level of agility and of speed that we uh, see in some of the emerging countries or some of the competitors. And if processes are not, uh, could not be simplified, or if the level of agility could be different, I think that partnering with other players will be critical. It is extremely important to have the U.S. engage because when the U.S. Uh, is engaged, we have better quality, we have more accountability, and, uh, uh, and uh, with sustainable development, which will also follow. Thank you. Senator Young, um, so just to follow up, uh, Dr. Signe, because uh, you've written previously that attention to African preferences and policy priorities should be of heightened attention if the United States is serious about successfully countering the $10 billion Chinese soft power initiative and better competing with other global players. Um, is that your response to the last question seemed to sort of flesh out that idea, but do you want to add anything else to what you meant in this statement? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I, I mentioned, and my apologies, I mentioned some of the elements when you were uh, not, when you went to, to, to vote. So, various elements. First, African citizens prefer the U.S. model of development over the Chinese one and over the European ones as well. So that is the first element. Second, African citizens prefer deep, uh, uh, democracy, accountable governance over other forms of uh, uh, governance. So those are clear areas of uh, a strong competitive advantage, uh, of alignment with uh, the US. So African citizens also want their governments uh, to address in priorities questions related to unemployment, uh, to uh, infrastructure, to education, uh, among other. Those are also, especially uh, for uh, digital, on, on the digital sphere, uh, but also uh, in terms of education, those are areas where the US is leading around the world. So we, we have this unique uh, advantage that the US has, but on, on the African side, Africa is also offering with the African continental free trade area, the largest uh, free trade area per number of countries since the creation of the World Trade uh, Organization. Uh, and his Secretary General, I think, intervened today during the event uh, uh, with the Corporate Council uh, on Africa. So, it is, so those are clear opportunities for the U.S. to engage 
with African at the continental level, at the national level, at the sub-regional uh, level, and to have a conversation. I think the key uh, words here are partnerships, conversation, uh, and building on those to develop a strategy uh, to capitalize on uh, US-Africa trade and investment uh, and uh, generate share prosperity. Well, thank you, and I just have um, one last question for you and the panel, because one of your recommendations is the United States should capitalize on the African diaspora, um, which is, you know, re representative and very active in the United States, including in, in my state of Maryland. Um, and it's a great, a, a incredibly dynamic um, community, and as you point out, also a huge opportunity uh, for the United States to engage with Africa. But the challenge is how would you organize that, right? How would you actually provide a framework for input? Uh, the diaspora, of course, is, you know, comes from many, many different countries. We've talked about different sectors. Do, do you have ideas, and, and then I just ask the other two as well, on, on how the U.S. government might want to, you know, frame that input? Thank you very much for the question. Definitely the diaspora plays an incredibly important role, building bridges, representing, facilitating transaction, uh, technology transfer, also in public service. In fact, at the Brookings Institution, we organized recently, and I think that was in partnership uh, with USAID, uh, we organized a, uh, a convening with uh, various members of the diaspora to discuss, engage, and strategize on how the diaspora could be better involved in the uh, policy-making process, but also in uh, investment uh, and trade. I think one of the ways to create a um, diaspora commercial diplomacy I think to have a council of the diaspora to have specific tools, including in terms of investment, because the diaspora uh, has been involved in, with many uh, countries, mo mostly your countries of origin, uh, but uh, some of them are many generations, uh, from many after many generations. So it, is, it will really be important to create a space for conversation. So conversation will really be important to have a conversation uh, with many representatives of the diaspora, the association among other, to have a diaspora council and to have a very proactive uh, uh, commercial diplomacy or what I, I call diaspora commercial diplomacy to make sure that uh, the U.S. capitalize on uh, the assets, on the uh, unique contributions that those members of the diaspora could uh, provide. And some countries have even provided financial resources, in, in the case of Canada, for example, where they have specific uh, fund where some member coming from the diaspora uh, are also eligible to support their business operations uh, among others. So we can have a broader framework and um, the current administration uh, has also distinguished itself uh, before the election by having a diaspora platform. So I think that uh, a diaspora policy can build on the diaspora platform, on the, uh, the campaign diaspora platform, but uh, of course, uh, building and continuing the incredibly important bipartisan 
uh, work and engagement that uh, this subcommittee is uh, has been known for and for which we are very grateful. So showing an illustration on that on the on how politics could be done to serve the uh, greater good. Our other two witnesses have anything to quickly add to that before I uh, turn it over to Senator Haggerty, who also has some additional questions. Sure, I'll jump in and be brief. Uh, honestly, Senator, I don't think you're going to organize the diaspora into a way that is easy to engage with. Um, my suggestion is instead on focusing on higher education. That's what brought a lot of the diaspora here. That's what keeps them here. And if you know that the African diaspora, particularly Nigerian diaspora, is one of the high, highly educated diaspora groups in the United States. And today, um, if you look at African leaders, 20% of current African leaders, presidents and heads of state, studied in the United States. And in 2015, we lost out that position of hosting the most uh, English-speaking African students to China. Now they go there. And so 25 years from now, where will they, be, where will they have studied? And so I think it's very important to focus on uh, education as one of the key areas in which to engage the diaspora uh, because many of them are organized. Every one of the business schools has, a, has an African kind of diaspora business club. There's ways to do it through education. I'd like to... Can you hear me? Good. I'd like to just add um, actually some specific things that I think can be done in terms of promoting uh, U.S. diaspora trade with Africa. Uh, the Minority Business Development Agency um, has a way to reach uh, small um, uh, diaspora-owned businesses in the U.S. Um, SBA has a program focused on Africa. Um, and I think if you're looking to link the U.S. diaspora uh, to um, the continent, um, you're looking at products that they import and export regularly. This is something that they do informally most of the time. And that one of the things that we can do is to try to support formalizing that kind of, of, of trade and engagement between small diaspora-owned, women-owned businesses here in the U.S. Um, with um, uh, uh, women-owned businesses and, and small enterprises on the African side. And I think that there is room for us to support those small businesses more. They are the ones who get the least amount of support um, in terms of uh, our institutions like the Export-Import Bank, DFC, et cetera. They, they just don't qualify for the kind of, um, uh, I, I support fully what DFC and Export-Import Bank and others do, but these kinds of small companies, diaspora-owned businesses, don't get that kind of support. So we need to see how we can use the SBA and the Minority Business Development Agency um, to work on, on, on identifying those groups and helping them with trading with Africa. Well, thank you. I want to thank all of you uh, for your testimony today. It's obviously a very broad and deep uh, subject, and in a hearing, even a few hours, you only begin to scratch the surface. But I think you gave us a lot of really good leads, and I appreciate the specific recommendations uh, that each of you have made, and I know my my colleagues do as well. And if there are issues that you think sort of we glaringly left out, we welcome you to submit any uh, follow-up uh, testimony uh, to uh, the committee. Um, and I also, before closing, um, want to ask uh, the consent of my colleagues 
to enter into the record two additional materials. Uh, the first is a report by the Labor Advisory Committee on Trade Negotiations and Trade Policy on a potential U.S.-Kenya trade agreement. Uh, the second uh, is a letter from the AFL-CIO Director of Government Affairs addressing the topics of today's uh, hearings, uh, and I urge my colleagues uh, to review those uh, materials. Uh, the record in this hearing um, will be open until the close of business uh, Thursday, and without any other uh, statements, um, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you all very much. Thank you for having us.